Hello, my name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. For this episode, we will be talking with Melissa Lutke. Melissa is an American journalist, and she has worked for Sports Illustrated. She is also the winner of the Yankee Quill Award, the Mary Garber Award, and several other journalism awards. She is best known for the case of Ludke versus Kuhn in 1978, which she won, giving women journalists the same access as men for the team's clubhouse. Melissa has an upcoming book called Locker Room Talk, A Woman's Struggle to Get Inside. Welcome to our podcast, Melissa. Thanks so much, Bob. It's great to be here. Uh, Melissa, I was thinking uh, before, you know, be, I mean, the main gist of uh, our conversation is going to be the, uh, the lawsuit, but I'd like to start with some you know, background information before that famous court case, such as, and a lot of the stuff that um, I heard in your presentation down in Baltimore when I was at the Sabre convention, but I want to share it with our listeners. Um, your, your, your dad was more of a football fan, so you had said that your mother influenced your love for baseball? You've told a story about your mother's fandom. Could you share this with our listeners? Well, she did indeed. My parents were brought together by um, the end of World War II when my father, who was in the Navy, came into the uh, Boston uh, shipyard for a while. And uh, on a uh, date, he met my mother, who had grown up in the Boston area in, in Milton, Massachusetts. And so they were a pair that, you know, absent the war, we might never have met, probably would never have met. But uh, he was from the Midwest, grown up in, uh, in Iowa, Waterloo, Iowa. And as I say, she grew up around Boston. So he brought with him into that partnership, well, many things. But if we're talking about sports, he was really a football guy. I mean, that was really the Midwest, and that was what he followed and what he liked. If he had a baseball team, it was probably the Chicago White Sox. But football was his thing. For my mother, it was very different. She had grown up accompanying her father. She was the youngest of four children, and the one who really took to the sport of baseball and thus became her father's uh, best buddy, and they would go to Fenway Park together when the Red Sox were playing during her teenage years. And then when they were on the road, she would go into her room and play it on the radio, play the game on the radio, and she would keep score. Her father had taught her how to keep score. And around her, uh, tacked into the cornice of her bedroom, were the um, large pictures. They were black and white that were taken during spring training of all the players, and she rode away and uh, had those shipped to her home, and she would put them up every uh, season so that she would have the ball players kind of looking down on her while she was listening to it. And then she would take her scorecard that she had from that game, put it into a scrapbook, and the next morning when the newspapers arrived, she would cut out the um, articles, and she would pair the articles from the game with her scorecard, and so she began to build a scrapbook. So I would say that uh, under almost any qualification of the word fan, mm -hmm. uh, she qualified. Um, she loved the game, and she continued to love it and share it with her children. Um, I, being the oldest of five children, 
and I can remember watching many, many games with her, uh, you know, on TV. She would often bring her ironing down and do some ironing while she was watching the game. But there would be summer afternoons I would come home and find her alone in the living room just watching the game. Um, I would say it was rare that the Red Sox played a game and she wasn't listening to it or watching it in some way. And that rubbed off on me. And um, we can go into it later, but I was very fortunate, first of all, to get a job at Sports Illustrated. But secondly, once I did, to eventually get a job as the reporter on the baseball beat. So uh, it matched my love for the game by that point with the chance to do it professionally. Yeah. Okay. Now, I read that you graduated from Wesley College in 1973, and you had a BA in art history. Now, what led you to sports journalism? Uh, well, Wellesley College was a liberal arts college, all women's college at the time during, and, and it was the era, by the way, when uh, other uh, colleges that had been one gender, such as Yale, Princeton, um, uh, Pembroke, and Brown, they were beginning to go co-ed. Wellesley, Wellesley College has remained an all women's college, and it was a liberal arts school at the time. So I went to it, and I had had the experience because my dad was a university professor. But when I arrived at Wellesley College, I had just come from being away on a sabbatical year with him, and I had gone to school in Rome, Italy. And if anyone, I challenge anyone to go to school in Italy with a course in history of art and a course in the history of the Renaissance and not come away absolutely uh, bound and determined that you're going to learn more about art history. Um, and the woman who had taught me at uh, my school in Rome, Italy, uh, was a woman who had graduated with a degree in art history from Wellesley College. And I was inspired by her. She was a phenomenal, phenomenal teacher. So when I got to Wellesley, I, um, I just saw no other path than to study art history. And at that time, I really didn't uh, imagine a future in journalism. I didn't work on my school newspaper, as I had not done when I was in uh, high school. So there wasn't anything that would have led anyone, including me, to think that after graduation, I would end up doing, doing sports journalism. However, uh, when I did graduate with that degree and thought about um, what I would do next, I really did not want to stay in school and go to graduate school as many of the art history majors did to pursue their studies to go on with museum work or something like that. I wanted to get out in the world. And so I began to think about what would be a possible plan B and what did I enjoy, where was my passion, what did I, what, what did I think I could do. And um, it was really a visit uh, one evening to um, a neighbor's house for dinner and the serendipitous experience of sitting across from Frank Gifford, who had been a New York Giants player and was then a broadcaster for ABC Sports, that uh, after a lively conversation at dinner in which we talked about sports, uh, Frank turned to me and gave me a compliment. He said, for a girl, you know a lot about sports, and quickly followed that up with an invitation that were I in New York, he'd be happy to introduce me to people there. So, Bob, that was really the turning point for me. It was that one uh, period of two hours over a dinner table 
that um, made me think that uh, something I would never have imagined doing might be possible. Um, and so within three weeks, I had arranged to come down to New York. I really had never been there on my own before and drove down and Frank, a man of his word, uh, met me there and introduced me around, including to the only and then, and then at that time woman producer, Ellie Rieger, who happened to be working on a show about women in sports. Title IX had just been passed. Uh, about a week before I came down, Billie Jean King had beaten Bobby Riggs in uh, Battle of the Sexes in uh, in Texas in the uh, tennis match that was uh, that was called the Battle of the Sexes because of the uh, man versus woman, and she had won. And um, there was just a feeling at ABC that they needed to explore this topic. So Ellie was working on this. I. She invited me to stick around New York for a couple days and hang out with her crew, all women, working on this show. I did that. And what might have sealed the cake was when Billie Jean King herself walked up the stairs and into that studio where we were working. And at that point, there was no question in my mind that this was the world I wanted to inhabit. The question of how I would um, was, I guess, just a tantalizing... Um, challenge at that point. So I did move to New York a couple months later at the beginning of the next year and um, eventually found my way to Sports Illustrated. Well, I can see how uh, influential that that whole situation. I mean, you know, you know, with the time, you know, the time that you're talking about with uh, Title IX and, and, and meeting Billy King and uh, Billie Jean King. I could definitely see how you would be influenced by that. Now, um, being that I, I was like in middle school when all that was going on, and I remember uh, the women's movement, um, how would you describe the social atmosphere while you were working for Sports Illustrated? And you, you also worked for Time Magazine? I did, uh, and that was, uh, that was after I kind of left Sports Illustrated later on went to CBS News briefly, really didn't like working in TV and returned to Time Inc. where I went to work for Time Magazine and then covered the 1984 Olympics for them. But to backtrack, your question about Sports Illustrated was what kind of uh, experience was it? Yeah, the so what was the atmosphere like, the social atmosphere? Like I said, there was the, the women's liberation, uh, you know, movement was going on. Was there, uh, um, were they... Uh, a liberal organization or conservative or, you know, just well, to... Time Inc. Yeah, Time Inc. was a fairly conservative organization, I think, as David Halberstand has written in his own looks back at that era in time and the rest. Uh, you know, to use the term of today, I would not call Time Incorporated at that time a woke organization. Okay. Uh, it still, I mean, just two years before I got there, its own women picking up on a legal action that had been generated by the women at Newsweek and successfully led to a discrimination suit uh, being settled at Newsweek. A lot of other media organizations followed suit, and Time Inc. had been among them. Uh, women, uh, a few women at Sports Illustrated, many other throughout the company, had signed a um, document uh, claiming that there was gender discrimination in the hiring, the promotion and the pay of women. They had documented it, as had the women at Newsweek before them. 
And these were the kind of legal actions that were then being taken, uh, bringing gender to the fore, uh, both as, uh, as race had been used as a way to mark discrimination in the past, gender was now um, also the same. So I would uh, say that time was very much struggling with its gender issues. Uh, they were only two years away from having signed a conciliation agreement in which they admitted no fault, but claimed they would do better in all of these areas. Uh, so when I arrived, they were still in the early, early stages of, quote unquote, trying to do better. And then you add to that that ours was, um, you know, perhaps the world's leading sports magazine at the time embedded in a company that was having its challenges with how it treated its own women. When you add to that sports, which is very much viewed as it still is, arguably, as a, um, you know, men's world. Um, and I would say that it was a very challenging time to be a woman at Sports Illustrated, and especially if you were an ambitious woman who wanted to have the same opportunities that the men did. Um, it was clear to anyone who looked at the masthead that it was weighted much more uh, female at the bottom of the ladder. Uh, and uh, it was only after the conciliation agreement that they had actually really begun to hire men as um, in the entry-level jobs. I mean, before that, a man would come out of college, just the same as it happened at Newsweek, and the uh, uh, men and the women would graduate from the same colleges, say it was Princeton or you know some of the Ivy Leagues, and the men would be hired as the staff writers and the women would be the uh, researchers or the uh, file clerks. So um, those lawsuits were necessary to change that pattern. So we were still in a, we were still at a time when um, I would say the challenges to being a woman at Sports Illustrated and at timing were still uh, rather daunting. You know, you also, um, well, I'm, I'm relating a lot of this from uh, the presentation that I heard you give down in uh, Baltimore. Now, you faced a lot of uh, chauvinism and resistance leading up to the suit. And I remember you talking about your uh, two-week travel with uh, Roger Kahn. Um, could you share with our listeners a little bit about that experience? Yeah, at the, uh, toward the end of my first full year, uh, full season, as an official uh, reporter on the baseball beat, and there were always two reporters on the baseball beat since it was such a, uh, such a large um, you know, sport. It was the national pastime then and got a tremendous amount of coverage in the magazine. And... Uh, one, the senior reporter, because he'd been on the beat longer, was uh, Jim Kaplan. And uh, then there was myself, and I had taken over when a woman named Stephanie Salter, who had been the junior baseball reporter before me, left to take off to move west, where she became a sports writer. In those days, the women who really were ambitious and wanted to do more reporting and writing at Sports Illustrated often found that they had to leave and get jobs with newspapers if they actually wanted to write. And so Stephanie had left, moved out to the West Coast, where she did become a, a sports, sports writer and a columnist. And in the meantime, I sort of took on um, on the baseball beat. 
So at the end of that season, I remember being called into the editor's office and told that I would be going out to report with uh, Roger Kahn on a two-week assignment. He was an outside contract writer for the magazine, and as such, he'd been hired to do a, I think it was a three-part series looking at the old-timers in baseball. And uh, so I was delighted to have this assignment. I, I felt very, you know, kind of honored uh, that I had been given this opportunity. And so we set out, and I think what you're getting at is a story I did share in my presentation in Baltimore to really point out that by 1976, which is a year before um, I end up in the uh, brouhaha I did over locker rooms, we had gotten to Kaminsky, Kaminsky Park in the White Sox because he was going to spend some time with Bill Vec, who was the owner of that team. And uh, when we arrived, he asked me to go pick up the uh, press passes for us, and, and I'd meet him in the press box, and then we'd go from there. He was going to sit with Bill Vec, and I sat a couple rows behind him. And um, I didn't really uh, realize what was happening um, in the press box as, as several reporters or writers approached him. I thought they might know him or wanted to say hello. But as I learned in a book he wrote um, in 2003, I believe, called October Men, he actually does a chapter on our trip. And in that, he talks about how men writers came up to him and informed him that he was not allowed to bring his girlfriend into the press box, intimating that I was that girlfriend. Um, and uh, that obviously I think that it was evident to me at that point that the White Sox had not been covered by a woman reporter up until that point. And to see me actually taking a seat in the press box, they had no way of understanding it except to think that Roger had was trying to pull a fast one on them and have his girlfriend accompany him. Well, he informed them that I was, in fact, a reporter for Sports Illustrated. But that wasn't the end of that situation for that evening, because that later that night we were supposed to meet up with Bill Vec in something called the Bard's Realm, which is in, was inside of that old baseball park, and the place where writers went after the game, and there was a bartender, and they would sit around and you know, talk about the game, whatever they wanted to do. So we um, entered the Bard's room, and I went to sit down at a table. Roger went up to the bar, and he came back from the bar and said to me, we're leaving, and I, I just followed him out, and uh, we left, and uh, we never caught up with Bill back that night. It turned out that the bartender had informed him that I was not allowed as a woman to sit in the Bard's room. So those were two instances at the very end of the 1976 season that I think speak to the fact that it was really about men's fear of having women uh, participate, as I was attempting to do as a full-time reporter uh, for Sports Illustrated. Um, you know, I know that the locker room instance, which we can get into a bit later, really is characterized as being a case which involved the locker room and the idea that uh, men might be changing their clothes so this wasn't a place that a woman should be. Well, you know, I would say there's a number of things we can say about that later. Uh, that really wasn't the reason, uh, in my view, 
because you can see a history, if you go back in baseball, of women being excluded and being feared as being invaders of what was a men's only space. I mean, we certainly know that there was no man in that press box who was writing his story without clothes on, and there was certainly no man who was naked in the Bard's room. So it wasn't about me invading a private space. It was about me being looked at as an invader of a tradition, um, you know, with conventions that revolved around men. So that was a very eye-opening experience and uh, one that, as I write my book, I share because I think it really sets the tone for where we were when we start the 1977 season. You know, you know what I found surprising and, and going back on on the story you told is uh, Bill Veck, because, you know, everything I read about him in his books and, and articles and everything is that he was a champion for civil rights. I mean, you know, Larry Doby and, and all of that. But he seemed ex uh, seemingly uh, vague or wavering concerning your rights. And I would think there was a lot of similarities between the two. Do you have any idea why he was? Was it the, uh, you know, like he's, he kind of like blew it off saying that, you know, he wasn't aware of uh, a lot of things. What do you, th why do you think he was so vague or wavering about supporting your rights? Oh, he wasn't vague or wavering. He was absolutely against it. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I can't remember the quote, but he said something like, would I let a woman come and watch me pee? I mean, he was just, uh, he took the standard line, which was very sort of unthinking and uh, not understanding, actually, how a clubhouse works. Uh, the bathrooms and the shower area are off limits to every reporter, whether you're a male or a female. So uh, there was never an issue of us being... Um, you know, anywhere close to where men were using, um, you know, bathrooms or showering. So he decided, I mean, like many of the men did, he was a man of his era. Yeah. And uh, I think that, um, you know, in some ways, uh, gender was more frightening to them, maybe, than the issue of, uh, of race was. I mean, I know he was a champion of, you know, of many players, et cetera, and he was someone who you know, was constantly looking to bring, um, you know, some form of entertainment often change, you know, to baseball, and he pushed that. But I think when it came to gender, he just couldn't see it. He was blinded, just like many, many men of his generation. Uh, no, he was he was not, uh, not equivocal. <laughs> he was not with He was totally against it. I, like I said, that... Uh that was, you know, surprising, and, and thank you for, um, you know, expounding upon that. Now, you talked with and about, or were talked about by some iconic voices, such as Walter Cronkite and Howard Cosell. I mean, how did that make you feel? It must have made you feel pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty important or pretty cool. I mean, those are two legendary uh, voices of, of television. Well, I'll start with Walter Cronkite because I had grown up with him. I had actually started with uh, Douglas Edwards, who had preceded him, and then uh, Walter Cronkite. He was like a you know an eighth person at our dinner table. We had 
uh, five kids and two parents in my family, and uh, we had uh, the news on at night when we ate in the dining room. Um, and I think that was in part to sort of provoke or to stimulate kind of conversation about what was happening in our world at that time. Um, and by that time, I really mean probably mainly the 60s when I was really probably focused in on watching Walter Cronkite and discussing some of the things. I mean, certainly it was the time of uh, the civil rights movement. Um, it was the assassination of President Kennedy and later on the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. You know, so there were a lot of, of things happening and changing in the world. And so Walter Cronkite, I mean, obviously I, like many others who witnessed it, will never forget when he st stood up from his chair and walked over to the map of Vietnam and uh, basically did what was verboten in those days, which was essentially have an editorial voice in play in the midst of his news conference. And, um, you know, I think President Johnson was quoted saying, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the war. And, um, you know, those were the times that I lived through. And so he was more than just you know, a newsman to me. He was someone I had grown up with who was literally at my dining room table who I felt I had learned much about the world from. So I was particularly pleased, I have to say, that when he did report my story of the successful um, court order uh, in my case, he made it the last story of the day and he closed with his iconic um you know, uh, a, a departure from the news, and that's the way it was. That's the way it is. September, you know, I think it was 27th, 1978, and that kind of sent chills through me. I have to say, um, so I think I had a very special relationship with him. With Howard Cosell, again, I mean, if you were in sports in that time, uh, you knew Howard Cosell. At least you knew his voice. You knew who he was, and you knew that by that time I had admired him greatly for standing up as, as the only person really to have stood up for Muhammad Ali when he was an objector to the war in Vietnam. So I certainly knew him well. I also had had some brief exposure to him on a personal level when I had been doing my sort of off and on what I'd call gopher work uh, with ABC Sports. I had gone and sat in many of the control rooms and the rest when they were doing voiceovers for some of their programs where the commentator would come back in after they had the video and they would do the voiceovers. And I always marveled at how amazing Howard was at doing it. I mean, you could sit him down and in one take he'd do it. But he also often required demanded or wanted um, a few martinis in front of him this was happening. And I really remember a night where I was over, I think it was even a Sunday night, and the director turned to me. They, Even though I never worked officially for ABC Sports, they treated me like I did. So I remember a director turned around and said, hey, could you go to the bar? We'll give you this money. On the, go to the bar in the corner, and, and we need this kind of a martini. You know, I can't remember exactly, but dry with so many olives, etc. And can you bring back two of them? Well, you know, that wasn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, to go to a bar and then carry the drinks out and across the street and down to... Anyway, but I had done that. And so by the time I ended up being invited um, as the plaintiff in this case to appear on 
the Howard Cosell show, you know, I really kind of felt um, some kind of small uh, sense of connection, you know, to him. And certainly he was a figure I, I looked up to and had great respect for. He was also a lawyer by training, which I knew. And, um, you know, because mine was a legal case, uh, I felt that he was one of the best interrogators or interviewers um, that I had. And after we had done the taping for the show that actually ran on uh, Super Bowl Sunday in 1978, his magazine show, which he devoted to this topic, um, he turned to me and he said, let's just, let's go get a drink. Let's go sit down and talk and stuff. We ended up maybe talking, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half or so, um, you know, and then I kind of went home after that. So, um, you know, both of those experiences uh, meant a lot to me um, for those reasons. You know, it, it's funny. Well, I um, I remember that interview because I was a uh, uh, a Steeler fan, and that was the Super Bowl that that was on. Um, but um, I wa- so I I watched your interview, and and I thought that Howard was, and and you alluded before you said that he was a supporter of of you, um, that he was fair with his questions, and he allowed you to express your opinions. I mean. Uh, I think that was uh, that was definitely a, a feather in in your cap and and the cause uh, that you uh, you won. Now, a couple of my favorite baseball journalists um, weren't as inviting to women, and and they would be Red Smith and Jerome Holtzman. Um, do you think that? And and I won't I won't quote what they said, but there was some pretty chauvinistic. Uh, statements that they had made, but do you think they changed their opinions at any time, or did you ever have an opportunity to meet either one of them, or? Well, I mean, I was in press boxes with both of them, but um, the, the the older, more established um, baseball writers tended to avoid me. I mean, they didn't say things that were in any way cruel, didn't treat me badly to my face when we were there, but just avoided I mean, we have, you know, just avoided each other. I mean, I would certainly say hello if we happened to pass, but um, there was really no reason for us to engage in conversation. Most of the most of the baseball writers who did uh, become my friend were were younger, uh, with the exception being Roger Angel, who um, I often would sit next to in press boxes, both being magazine people. And uh, we became great friends during that time, and I much appreciated the story that he did, in which I think you're citing uh, Jerome Holtzman's uh, comments about me, which were, um, you know, basically, I just wish you weren't here. Yeah. I think I just summed them up in that way. So I don't think he ever changed his mind, really. Um, And I don't think Red Smith ever changed his mind. Red Red Smith's... um, comments and thoughts about me, which he expressed in his syndicated column that then went out to hundreds of newspapers around the country, had a much more significant effect than Jerome Holtzman's personal views of me, which he didn't really write uh, about. But the fact that um, that Red Smith wrote a column that was syndicated uh, went out in, uh, in January, soon after my case was filed. And in it basically called me the laughing stock of, uh, you know, of a very um, 
interesting sports season, uh, you know, that I was sort of put the laughter into the very end of it. He referred to me as someone who was martyring myself as Joan of Arc. He talked about how ridiculous I was for thinking that I needed to have the access that I was asking for, et cetera, et cetera. He treated me like an incredibly, um, you know, immature and um, very um, unserious person, which I did not take myself to be. And um, the, you know, the challenge with that was that what Red Smith wrote and what went out and was published in, as I said, hundreds of newspapers, truly made a difference in shaping the kind of coverage that other sports columnists did. He was considered the dean of sports journalism. He'd been, after all, the first sports journalist ever to win a Pulitzer Prize, which he'd won the year before. I think it was in 76, if not 75, but it was it was recent. So he had a reputation that made others want to um, want to emulate him. And so he really set the tone, I believe, for a lot of the coverage that came after me that was, you know, uh, mean-spirited, joking, um, misogynistic. We didn't have that word back then, but that's what it is and was. So, um, yeah, I mean, Maury Allen, who was at the Daily News, I mean, did write columns about me and about women. And, I mean, you just read those today and you go, really? Yeah. (laughs) They were being published. So there were a lot. I mean, Jerome was certainly not um, on his own in his views on, right. on me. Yeah, so, I think... I have said that it wasn't me personally, that I represented something that they feared. Right. I represented being... A, if I was a woman who could make it through their gauntlet, you know, and be able to have the same opportunities that they did... Um, then they wouldn't have their boys club anymore. You know, they just wouldn't have it. And that was a great fear about how we would change, you know, their traditions and conventions and the game itself. I, I think that they were overwrought in their, in their, in their fears, but nonetheless, that's what they, that's, that's what they, that's what they envisioned. Yeah. Yeah. I think Red was, uh, and, and I've read other, like I said, I've read a lot of his columns, and I have some of the collections of, of his columns and stuff. And he seemed to, how would I say, get full of himself or drunk with the power of his reputation. A lot of times uh, he was very uh, opinionated, like like he expressed when he was, uh, you know, talking about your situation. Um, but I want to talk, I'm going to start at this point, uh investigating or, or uh, talking about the uh, court case. And the first first thing I want to say, because, you know, after uh, you mentioned her down in Baltimore, I, uh, I uh, checked out on the Internet. I wanted to know more about Judge Constant Motley. I mean, uh, having uh, her pres- uh, presiding over your case was was that, do you think that might have been the luck of the draw since she was the only a female judge in the uh, the pool that they were going to pull out a, a judge. I mean, and and what did you think of her? I mean, I I'm, I think I recall you were very um, impressed uh, impressed by her or honored. 
Well, I mean, she was the only woman who had been ever appointed to that court, which is the mother court of our country, which means that it's the only court in our nation's history that was founded before the, uh, the Supreme Court. So it goes way, way back. I believe it's 1789. And so since then, not one woman had sat on that bench until Judge Motley joined the bench in 1966. She joined it because President Lyndon Baines Johnson um, nominated her. Uh, he wanted to nominate her for the Court of Appeals, but as she was a, uh, as the, at the time, a Negro woman, and no Negro woman had ever sat on any federal bench in this country, add to that the fact that she had been the litigator for the NAACP uh, legal defense and education fund case that had uh, enabled uh, James Meredith to enroll at Old Miss, thus desegregating uh, the University of Mississippi, uh, she didn't stand a chance at being appointed to the um, appellate court, which is where Johnson thought she belonged. Uh, her her uh, colleague at the NAACP, uh, Thurgood Marshall, had in fact been appointed by Kennedy, as people remember, to the appellate court. But by the time she got into this position of being appointed by Johnson, uh, James Eastland was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which she would have to go through. And anyone who remembers Eastland remembers a staunch segregationist who was the senior senator from Mississippi. And he uh, was not going to let this woman who had desegregated his flagship university uh, uh, be appointed under his watch. Uh, he, uh, when Johnson agreed to appoint her to a district court and pick the New York court where she was sitting at that time as Manhattan borough president, uh, having left her job as a litigator, um, he had a tremendously difficult time, even with the kind of leverage that Johnson, uh, we know, was able to do in the Senate of getting her through. It took seven months. And it included Eastland coming forward with a woman who came to testify that she had been a, a sympathizer to the Communist Party in her youth. He tried everything he could to make it so that she would not get this position. And in fact, uh, he finally had to give in and she was appointed to the district court. So in the uh, federal court, when a case comes to a federal court, it is accepted by a court. They then have to assign a judge, and the uh, way of doing that uh, is that they put the names of the available judges, those that are not currently sitting on cases and unable to take another, into a wooden box. In that case, it's a very historic wooden box that they spin, and then the clerk puts his or her hand in and pulls out a card, and that is the person who will be the judge in your case. In our case, they spun it. Uh, there were 27 judges on the court at that point. I don't know how many of them were, quote, available in the pool when they spun it that day. But uh, she was the name pool. So, yes, you can argue that having a woman take this case um, and uh, be the judge uh, might have seemed to the outside world is uh, kind of a stacked hand. But, and the fact that she also had uh, 
successfully argued uh, many 14th Amendment cases. In fact, she'd taken 10 14th Amendment cases on racial discrimination before the Supreme Court, an extraordinary record for any attorney. And she had won nine of them outright, and the uh, tenth that she lost later got uh, overturned uh, in the decision against her. And so she really ended up winning ten of ten. So you had this phenomenal uh, person who understood uh, at her core the issues of equal rights and the use of the 14th Amendment, which our case would be based on. So in many ways, it was, uh, one could argue, a good fit for our case for a judge who was well-schooled in the legal arguments that my judge would bring forward. However, I do want to point out to people, I'm not going to belabor this, but there have been studies that have been done and are cited, in fact, in uh, the book Civil Rights Queen, which came out last year, the definitive biography of her, uh, by Tamiko Navon Brown. So she went and looked at the record on um, Constance Baker Motley in terms of her decisions for plaintiff or defendant in 14th um, Amendment cases that came before her in her career. And in fact, she argued, she ordered, and and, uh, she laid down more in favor of defendants than plaintiffs in the 14th Amendment cases. As a plaintiff, we did win our case in front of her, but it doesn't mean that it was a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination. We had an extraordinary hurdle to get over in terms of of, uh, using the uh, state action doctrine, and that state action doctrine had been established by the Supreme Court during the Civil Rights Movement. She was familiar with that case because she'd been a co-counsel on it. But there have been legal scholars that have, in fact, looked at our case and looked at decisions and said that had our case been argued at a different time when the interpretation on the state action doctrine was different, we might not have prevailed in that and thus not been able to get a constitutional uh, ruling based on the 14th Amendment the Constitution because baseball, after all, was a private entity, and only if we were able to prove state action, state involvement, were we able to use the 14th Amendment, which it was decided on based on equal protection clause and due process. But I think we're getting into a little bit of the weeds here, but the answer is it's a mixed bag. I think baseball looked at her being drawn as the judge and uh, figured and uh, believed that once she made a decision, if it happened to go against them, that they would work their way to the appellate court, which was then all white men, and surely the white men would then see the error of her ways. In fact, that's not what happened. It went to a summary panel of three white men, appellate judges, after the decision was appealed, and three nothing, they upheld her decision fully. So... Excellent. complicated, like everything. It's a little bit yeah. more complicated and nuanced than one would think at first glance. Right. It's not not as cut and dry as as you would think. Um, no. Another figure in your leading up to this court case is uh, Tommy John. Um, you had talked about a conversation with Tommy uh, before the World Series that year. Would you uh, want to share that with the listeners? Sure. Uh, uh, the reason I had that conversation with Tommy John is that I attempted 
the first, uh, the day before the World Series was going to start in 1977, which was in, going to be played in New York between the New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And to go back to that trip I had taken with Roger Kahn, I had spent a lot of time getting to know and talk with Tommy Lasorda during that trip because one of the characters featured in Roger's piece was Walter Alston. So at the time that we met up with them, that team, the Dodgers, on our road trip at the end of 1976, Walter Alston had just made the decision to step down and Tommy Lasorda would become the next manager. And so we were there with Walter Alston just about a week before that. I'd spent a lot of time getting to know Lasorda. So uh, when I arrived on Monday for the workout uh, before the series started, I thought out of common courtesy, I ought to let the Dodgers know that I had a pass for the World Series that entitled me to access to the clubhouse, and that included their clubhouse. And I have to just step back to say that the reason I went to the Dodgers is because I was already well aware, having spent a lot of time reporting on the Yankees, that they were fine with me uh, going into the locker room. In fact, the last two games of the 77 season, for the first time, the PR director of the Yankees had left me a full clubhouse locker room pass, which I had used. And... Uh, no one had written about it. No one had complained about it. So it wasn't something where I had to discuss it with the Yankees. But I felt out of common courtesy, uh, I didn't have to do this, but I just felt as an individual that it was courtesy to let the Dodgers know, who had no woman covering them, that there was a chance that I might be coming into their locker room. And so I approached Tommy Lasorda first as the manager and... Um, Tommy kind of just, uh, he looked ashen when I mentioned it to him. He looked like he wanted nothing to do with this. He didn't want to discuss it with me. And uh, walking right behind us at that time happened to be Tommy John. And Tommy John was the player representative for the team. So it made perfect sense for Tommy Lasorda to hand me off to Tommy John as we walked down the tunnel into the dugout, which he did. When we got to the dugout, Tommy John sort of very gentlemanly said, well, let's just sit down for a couple minutes. Let's talk about this. And so I would say 10 or 15 minutes, we sat in the dugout together and just talked. I showed him the pass. It indeed said, had my name on it, and it said that I was uh, you know, given access by the Baseball Writers of Association of America to um, enter the, uh, the clubhouse. And he looked at it, and he said, you know, he said, I might be uncomfortable with this, but I can see you have every right to be there. He said, but let me take it back to the team. Let's have a discussion about it. And why don't I just meet you before the game on Tuesday, the first game? And I said, fine. I mean, you know, I had the right, but I wasn't arguing with them about going back. I thought every player should be aware of it. I, I, there was nothing wrong with that to my way of thinking. So um, he came back to me the Tuesday, right before the game started. We met at the backstop, as he had suggested we do, sort of apart from everyone else. So we didn't bring others into this discussion. And he said, you know, we talked about it. We had a vote. And it wasn't unanimous, but it was a majority. And that's how we do things. So if you need access, you need to come in. You're more than welcome. And so I thanked him for his listening to me. And I began to walk away. He called me back. 
And he said, hey, do you mind? He said, would you let Steve Brenner, who was their PR person, would you let him know that uh, that we've had this conversation and this is the uh, this is the agreement? And I said, no, not a problem. And again, I was under no obligation to do this, but I just thought, let's just make this work as smoothly as it can. So I went and found Steve Brenner, who I'd never met before. Let him know, and um, again, like Lasorda, he was very uh, brief with me, very, um, you know, he, he looked uh, startled by what he was hearing, and uh, he just walked away. And um, I had really no reading other than that from him. I went and got my dinner, which, uh, you know, the uh, sports writers are served before the game by the teams. And I went and took my seat in the auxiliary press box, which I, I was sitting right next to Roger Angel and some other magazine people. And about the fifth inning, through this scratchy little um, speaker that they had in the auxiliary press box, which is in the downstairs seats in the grandstand area, they carved out some room for the excess press that couldn't fit in the big press in the press box. Um, and they called me up to the main press box, and that is where I was informed by the media director for baseball, Bob Weirs, who was sort of the right hand, I call him sort of the lieutenant for Commissioner Kuhn. I was told by him that it made no difference if any team had given me or the baseball writers had given me permission. He said permission was never granted for you to enter the clubhouse because only the commissioner can give you that permission, and he never will. So um, that was the first game of that World Series, and um, that was sort of the way it was laid down to me. And by the sixth game, which turned out to be the last game of the World Series, there had been conversations taking place between the people of Sports Illustrated and baseball, and they came to me just before I was headed up to the stadium for that last game. Um, they came up to me and said that I would be given a male escort that night who would be going into the locker room to fetch the players I wanted to speak with. Um, I told them, informed the men, that that was ridiculous. It would never work, and it was an absurd idea. Uh, but I was uh, told that that was what the agreement was and that that's what we would work on work with. And so I told them I would do it under protest. I went up and told Bob Weirs that I had uh, heard the agreement. I was doing it under protest. And in fact, it was just an absolutely preposterous, uh, quote unquote, solution to what we would later argue needed to be an equal access. Uh, I was crushed against a concrete wall to, when I was told to stand outside the door of the Yankees locker room after they won the World Series. Uh, the players that I actually needed to speak to and wanted to speak to, including Reggie Jackson, who had hit three home runs during that, didn't come out, couldn't come out of the locker room to speak to me. And even the utility players who hadn't even played in the game that he brought out to talk to me couldn't hear my questions and I couldn't hear them because the sound outside in the, between these concrete walls was so loud so it was it was ridiculous, and the idea for baseball to contend that it was anything resembling an equal access situation because they'd given me uh, a PR director who would be my runner for the night uh, was absurd. Now, the question, well, I'm not sure 
how to put it, but did you ever meet the commissioner at any no. point? You never met him. Um, do you, and, and I think I, I kind of know the answer to this question also, do you think he accepted his uh, defeat in the court battle? That you had. I don't think he, no, no, he didn't. He didn't, right? He, he, he resented it, and I have never been able to absolutely confirm it, but Judge Motley's son, Joel Motley, who has done a short documentary on her and the rest, um, has said that he did hear that in a very highly unusual situation, that the commissioner did try to come to the court and uh, try to come into her chambers to discuss the decision, which would be highly, highly unusual for that to happen. And but inappropriate, I, right? I mean... Inappropriate, but I, I, I don't know if it did happen, so I just want to really clarify that um, that I don't know. But yeah. I think it, it, does, it does lend itself to my sense that this was something that really left a very bitter, bitter taste in his mouth. He was not accustomed to losing in court to start with uh, under his tenure. And even before that, baseball rarely, rarely, if ever, loses in the court of law. As you know, right. it's got a trust exemption. And the commissioner, when it involves uh, inter intra-baseball things, uh, was given, uh, you know, regal powers uh, when the agreement, the baseball agreement, was reached in 1921 with uh, Commissioner um, Kenneshaw. So, um, you know, Blandus. So it, it, it's it's very difficult. I mean, just prior to my case, uh, Charlie Finley had tried to go to court against Kuhn, and he'd lost. Kurt Flood had lost in court. The commissioner was not used to losing. He was not used to be being confronted. Um, so, I don't think he did. No, I think that this was something that uh, stayed with him probably for the rest of his life. Yeah. No, I that I figured that would be the answer, but you know, I just just was wondering wondering if uh, if he might have uh, changed his mind. Now, if he did, I never heard it. Yeah, I I haven't he didn't seem like a person that would change his mind. It seems like he he stand stood pat, I guess, on on a lot of his opinions. Um, I was gonna this part here. I was gonna mention some uh, some women in uh, in baseball in baseball that uh, just to get your opinions uh, <clears throat> about. Now I I can't. I you have to beg my uh, beg my uh, pardon that uh, Kim. And I can't pronounce, I'm not sure how you pronounce that name. She's with the Marlins. Kim Ning? Yep. How do you pronounce Kim, Kim Ning? Oh. Ning. Yeah, Ning. 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 Okay. Yeah. Now, um, do you have, a, I mean, a, any opinion about her? I mean, that's quite a, an accomplishment for her and for women in general to, to make it to that, that point to be a general manager. Right, well she is the first woman general manager ever in Major League Baseball. Uh, I will say that it is a hell of an achievement. I will also say that what the hell took so long. Yeah. Uh, she was certainly someone who was more than qualified, as many people testified for years, 
she worked and worked and worked her way up. She was often put into the mix when general manager positions came open. She was interviewed many times. Um, I think that uh, I think that she, uh, you know, to, to go through literally uh, the three decades that she did and uh, only get the job which she did, it's too bad. It's yeah. too bad. But it's a mark of how... Uh, challenging things can still be for women um, in baseball, but she persevered. She uh, obviously had the skill set uh, necessary to do it. She had a lot of people pushing behind her to say she's an extraordinary person. She should be uh, rising in uh, in baseball, and uh, I'm just glad she has. And uh, you know, it's tough to be the only woman in the room, so I'm right. sure that. Uh, I'm sure that it's not easy when she's at general managers' meetings, et cetera. But, um, you know, baseball's been making strides in the last couple of years, so I will give it to them. You know, they've, they've hired coaches. Uh, they've had a lot of strength coaches. They've had a lot of uh, – they've hired uh, managers. The Yankees have now a manager in their minor league system, Rachel Belkovic. Right. Uh, Women now as official scorers for games. They have coaches. A number of teams have coaches. Uh, you know, we even have Kelsey Whit Whitworth, who's the first uh, woman to be um, hired to play on an affiliate, a Major League Baseball affiliate. Um, and she's uh, she just, uh, I think she just got her first hit uh, the other day, but she's had a lot of firsts. So, um, you know, there there's change happening, but... Again, it's been, well, you know, since yeah. uh, my case in 78, uh, you can do the addition. It's been a lot of years, a lot of decades. Uh, it's good to see some breakthroughs happening. They're happening in the uh, in the broadcast booth as well. So, uh, yeah, it's great that she's done it. What took so long? Right. Well, but how did you feel about um you know, the panel that preceded your your presentation, the uh, the Baltimore Orioles seem to be doing a good job for uh, for bringing. Yes, the panel there had the woman who was now the first groundskeeper. Right. Uh, for the team. Uh, I'm going to get the titles wrong on, on some people. The uh, person who now heads their uh, human resources. Right. Uh, human, you know, relations is a woman. Uh, one of the, I, I, you're going to have to help me in terms of the designations, but yes, they were yeah. very impressive. Four women, all of whom work for the Baltimore Orioles in very high level of positions of authority, uh, you know, within the, within the front office. And, uh, and I was just, uh, particularly touched by the groundskeeper and her, oh, yeah. uh, her, uh, you know, kind of working her way through the, the system to rise to that position and, uh, and take that on. That is certainly something that probably for years and decades, and probably a century, has been looked at as something that, you know, quote-unquote, only men do. So, um, yeah, I thought it was terrific, and they were ter they were excellent in terms of being able to describe what it was like to come through the system as a woman, but then also to kind of shuffle off some of that and say, but, you know, no, I no longer, I don't want to be judged anymore by, I'm, you know, the best woman at this job. I want to just do the job. I know how to do the job, and I'll do it, and um, on we go, and I hope there will be others that will follow. So, I know, I was, uh, I, I, I thought it was a terrific panel, and I was glad to see it and hear it. You know, we, uh, and I forget, 
you know, the, the young lady's name, but we might see the next uh, female G, uh, general manager. Remember, remember the one that was close to where the moderator was? I mean, she, uh, she yes. uh, was very impressive, uh, you yes. know. Yes, yes, I thought the same thing. I thought yeah. the same thing. I thought, of, I thought of Kim Ning, and yeah. I thought, yes, this could be the next person that we hear from. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, she's certainly involved in all of those discussions at this point. And, um, you know, in terms of player decisions, et cetera, and um, she's working her way up. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah. So I hope she has a shorter time frame. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, I'm going to be wrapping. I got some questions I want to ask you before we uh, we get to actually your book and stuff. But um, what is there any particular woman that you looked looked up to, you know, when you were going in, you know, entering the field of sports journalism? Was there a, a uh... yeah? No, I mean, the answer is no because there wasn't. There weren't right. that I knew of. It wasn't like we had Google at the time. Yeah. Uh, they weren't coming across my path, and I didn't see them and interact with them. Um, I, I didn't really know that uh, that they existed. I didn't know about Mary Garber until I won the Mary Garber Pioneer Award. Wow. I'm not, not saying that's a good thing that I didn't, but I just didn't. I, I just hadn't heard of her. You know, I, I really had to sort of study my history and come to know it. So... I think probably Ellie Rieger, who really was the one who inspired my start when I saw her, you know, as being a woman who was a producer at ABC Sports. You know, you have to see it to be it. Um, I think being around Ellie and uh, watching her produce this show and and seeing her crew, which was all women. And in fact, um, when I was there during those three days in the fall of, of uh, 70. Um, having that experience there, I met her production assistant, Barbara Roche, and uh, Barbara had studied uh, broadcasting and sports journalism, uh, you know, in college, so it made sense that she had kind of come into this job path, but um, I befriended her, uh, we became very close friends, and ended up, I ended up sharing an apartment with her when I did move to New York, so um, that was a very, very critical three days in my life that I that I created those connections and had that network. Now, why was it really important, aside from the fact that Barbara was a friend then and remains a friend now? Well, because she was a production assistant, every beginning of every month, she got a complete list on paper of where all of the programming and all of the voiceover work, all of the post-production work, the dates, the times, the places, where all of that was taking place. So that became my roadmap. So if I had a, a mentor or someone I looked up to, in some ways it was my own roommate who was just about my same age. Right. But she had the keys to the kingdom because I could follow that and I could you know, kind of sign up to say I want to go out and be a gopher for this weekend on this show and I want to in the evening go over and sit down and watch this voiceover with this group of producers and directors. And so that was how I got my uh, entry to Sports Illustrated, because one of the producers I befriended through that group came to me and said, I, you know, I know the person who hires people for the entry-level jobs over at Sports Illustrated. 
would you like me to give you give him your name? And I said, of course I would. So, um, you know, and I just would say that the first time I went over and did an interview at Sports Illustrated, I got a big fat rejection letter. But, you know, that didn't stop me. I stayed in touch with the uh, person who was doing the hiring. I'd write postcards from wherever I was with ABC Sports. And um, about four or five, four months later or so, I got a call back. And that time I did another interview and I got hired. I would never have been hired at Sports Illustrated had I not had that that personal introduction from a producer at ABC Sports. I was an art history major. I had no record. Most people who were hired at Sports Illustrated in the job that I was hired into, reporter researcher, had a stack of clips from being a sports writer at their college newspaper, or in many cases, they were the sports editor of a major college newspaper, like the University of Michigan or whatever. I had none of that. So the, the, the good fortune that I had to be able to end up getting a seat at the table where I could at least do an interview, present myself, and eventually get hired, none of that would have happened if I hadn't gone over for those three days and hung out with Ellie and her, you know, gang of women. So. Yeah. Now, uh, moving on to your book and stuff now, I remember when you and I met in the, the lobby of uh, the Hyatt back in Baltimore, um, you said you're going to, um, what, where is the book now? If you found somebody that's going to publish it or you have any idea? not. I've written the book. I decided okay. to uh, write the book. Okay. Um, very unusual for a nonfiction. Oftentimes you'll just send out a proposal, try to get a publisher to say, yes, we'd like you to write it and, you know, give you some kind of an advance. And. I made the decision that I just wanted to finish the book and try writing it as I felt I wanted to tell my story. Remember, back in the 70s, I didn't get to tell my story, but right. then told my story. So I really wanted to use this book, you know, now almost 45 years after the suit, to try to pass down my own personal impressions and experiences from the through the lens of being a woman in that time going through what became a very uh, you know really world famous case and some of the what I take from it so uh, I wanted to see if I could do it try it and um, try different ways of, of telling the story so I've now completed it it moves from a prologue through chapters and it focuses on the lawsuit. Right. I do talk a lot about the misogyny. I do talk a lot about the experiences I had at baseball parks and the rest. But its primary focus is on the lawsuit, the legal action for equal rights as part of the equal rights struggle for women in the 1970s. So anyway, we're taking the book out into the marketplace uh, in September, uh, and I say we, I have a literary agent, I'm very fortunate that I do, and uh, we'll see what happens. So I don't have a publisher right now, but, you know, hopefully, maybe within the next month, if we're fortunate, things will change, and I will have one, and we'll have more of a sense of when the book will be brought out. Yeah. No, I think definitely, I mean, it's an interesting, and it's a historical, uh, you know, situation that, you know, I, I would be surprised if uh, you don't find someone to, um, to publish it that I mean, uh, I mean, I'd look forward to, um, to reading that. And, and like you had said, yeah, I'd sent you an email if, if you could just keep me uh, in the loop, uh, 
you know, uh, when, when you have this uh, available or when the book's available, I would be totally interested. And, and a question I was going to ask you, but you basically answered. I was going to ask you why, you know, uh, 1978 is, what, what did we say, 45 years ago and stuff, and, and why you were writing it now. Because, you know, a lot of people, uh, when they, they write about situations like that, it's like, you know, how everything is, uh, you know, spontaneous uh, uh, reactions to it. But you explained uh, why now is when you want to tell that story. Now, how long how long did it take you to write this uh, book? Did it come easy or? No, it didn't. I, I wrote almost an entire book, which I later threw out because I found myself writing it as a chronological story, which uh. um, which was boring boring me as right. I was uh, finishing it, and I thought if it's boring me, maybe it's going to be boring for readers. So I very much switched uh, switched completely uh, the ways in which I'm structuring the book and writing it, and again bringing it much more into the courtroom. Um, right. I do have the transcript from the entire two-and-a-half-hour hearing, and I am using that uh, as a uh, sort of a scaffolding. And uh, within that, I tell a lot of different stories. But you will actually, reader will actually come away having heard the case as it's presented. So you won't have to ask me, how did one lawyer do, how did another lawyer do, what was the argument, why did one win, why would one lose? You should come away understanding that yourself as you move through the book. So, yes, this was a differently structured book than I had thought I would do at first, and it was challenging to write. Um, you know, everything takes me longer to write than I think it will. So it took a number of years, and uh, when you talk about why now, I, I might not have totally had this in mind, but, again, uh, serendipity plays a role. I was uh, 26 years old. Uh, when this uh, case was filed with the uh, with the court, and uh, this Saturday, my own daughter turns 26 years old. Oh, okay. There's a certain uh, synchronicity here of wanting to and understanding um, that uh, you know if she's the only reader of this, which I don't think she will be, but were she to be, at least as a mother, I'm going to have handed down to her. Um, what I believe is sort of my voiced experience uh, from a time when I was her age and going through a very different experience than, you know, she will uh, in terms of being a woman at this point in our history. But it's not so different that it is not recognizable. There are, um, I would argue, many things about my experience that uh, probably do speak to today. Certainly they speak to the ongoing challenges of the fight for equal rights, uh, the ongoing challenges which are uh, probably exaggerated to some extent by our social media and our anonymity of, you know, sort of misogynistic responses to, um, to women, particularly in the sports arena. So, um, you know, I wrote it when I wrote it, but now that I have written it, I think I, I, I really appreciate the fact that, um, you know, that my daughter is the age I was when I was going through this. And um, I, I think her generation, um, 
you know, might find this story of great interest at this point, along with people of my generation who may want to look back at some of the fights that we uh, we all went through. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's how I would look at it. But um, you know what I wanted to tell you? I don't know if I had mentioned in our, our emails before, but um, uh, I also adopted children from, uh, you know, from Asia. You know, my three children were from uh, Korea. And I actually have a son that just turned 24. And my daughter is probably your daughter's age. They came, um, we went through Holt International. I think you you went through Pearl Buck. I'm not sure. No, I actually went with an adopt. I my daughter is from China. She right. was one of the girls um, who was abandoned during the China's uh, three plus decades of the one child policy. Oh, okay. Many many girls were abandoned because. Families, uh, particularly in rural areas where she came from, uh, felt that they needed and wanted a son. They needed it because of that was the tradition in the Chinese family that you needed a son to be your your pillar, right. your post, your soldier. You know, right? Uh, exactly. She was abandoned when she was a newborn, and I adopted her when she was nine months old. I went through an organization called China Adoption with Love here in the Boston area. But um, that was a time I adopted her in 1997 when she was, as I say, nine months old. And um, there was a time when a lot of Americans' families were adopting from China um, and uh, predominantly adopting at that time daughters. Yeah. So she is of that cohort and that generation. And we've actually done a book together called Touching Home in China in search of missing girlhoods, where she returned to the village where she had been found um, by the police and taken to the orphanage. And she spent three weeks getting to know girls her age who had been raised there as only daughters and finding out what her life might have been if she'd been raised there as a girl. So, you know, a lot of my, my life post my official journalism career with institutions has really been about trying to explore the dynamics of girls and women's lives through experiential books. So we did that one first, and then I turned my attention to going back and doing this history. Well, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to uh, contact my library and get a, uh, a copy of well, that. I'll, I'll contact your library because we did it as a multimedia uh, presentation that is free. It's on the web. You oh. just go to Taking Home in China. You Google that. Okay. And it's done with videos, with audio. It's done with slideshows. And we got a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation and developed a curriculum that goes with each of the stories. So it's on. It's meant to be free. It's not okay. anything where we have uh, tried to. Uh, make money. It's really a give back from uh, my part, uh, you know, to uh, these adoptees and other people who are kind of interested in this question. Well, that's good. I know my wife would love to um, to read and, and to see that. So uh, I'm definitely going to uh, do that. Um, but but uh, I think that concludes uh, our interview, uh, Melissa, because I know you have a Zoom meeting you have to go on. I know what that's about. <laughs> They're all kinds of fun. <laughs> but um, 
I just want to thank you how overjoyed and how thankful that you agreed to be a guest. Um, you enjoy your weekend, Melissa. And like I said, it was truly a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Bob. We'll be celebrating my daughter turning 26. So. Oh, okay. Great. All right. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com. And if you're interested in our new book, Intelligent Influence in Baseball, you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it. In the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist, Red Smith, baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds. <laughs> <laughs>